Welcome to Hockey Night in New York, where Islanders hockey is always top shelf. Whether you got your start as a dynasty veteran, a Millbury survivor, or you were born into the Church of Trots, Hockey Night in New York is your home for all things Isles. Now, here are your eclectic hosts, Sean Cuthbert and Christian Arnold. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Hockey Night in New York. Welcome to the program, everyone. It is Sunday, November 15th, 2020. Coming at you from the Hockey Night New York studios on Long Island. Huge show coming up for you tonight. The man, the myth, and the absolute legend, Doc Emmerich, joins Christian and I for a fantastic interview. Can't wait for you guys to hear that. Huge show coming up. My name is Sean Cuthbert. With me, as always, is Mr. Christian Arnold. Christian, how are you? I'm good. Very excited for everyone to hear this conversation we had with Doc. Buddy, I am stoked. It was fantastic. I can't wait for everybody to hear it. But before we get to that, I want to remind everybody we are proud to be sponsored by the Blue Line Deli and Bagels located at 719 West Jericho Turnpike in Huntington. Head over for great food, great people, and great Islander fans. And check out the menu at bluelinedeli.com. Also proud to be sponsored by Thai Technology, a voiceover IP company providing phone services for businesses across the country. If you're tired of dealing with long hold times and the impersonal service of companies like Spectrum, Optimum, and Verizon, give Thai Technology a call at 516-856-7800. They are from Long Island. And even better, they are diehard Islander fans. So, Christian, let's start talking hockey not a lot of news in the grand scheme. We're still waiting to find out when the return to play is going to be for the next season. The NHL is hopeful it is going to be in January. We're hearing whispers of maybe it getting pushed back to February. Still a lot of stuff up in the air, although it's nice to see that there's some stuff coming straight from the NHL over at NHL.com. There's been some interviews with Bill Daly. Gary Bettman's had some things to say. They're still going over what the plan is. We've heard some you know, talk of, and we brought it up last last week about maybe going to the seven, uh, sorry, the all Canadian division and whatnot, and doing everything by region, which could be a lot of fun. So we are still waiting on that. It seems the only real big news, as far as I guess the league at large and Islander country goes, is all the chatter about the <laughs> reverse retro jerseys that are coming down the pike soon. That is true, and of course, as we get closer to a season, we get closer to a resolution with. Matthew Barzal with the Islanders salary cap situation. Now we finally figure out what the plan is for, for Lou Lamorello. So there is certainly a lot of excitement and a lot of expectation. And um, as we get closer to that start of a season, as we get closer to a hard date and a, and, a, and a set schedule, things will become clear. But yes, everyone is talking about the reverse retro jerseys. Some not thrill. <laughs> I mean, again, listen, it's, their jerseys. It's, it's, it's fun to enter- talk about. Yeah, it's fun but. to talk about. It's entertaining to see everybody's different reactions yeah. and, and what they've had to say about it and you know of course we all have our own opinions and, and I'm happy to share mine <laughs> we have a platform to do it so we might as well and I guess let's just start with the Islander one because uh, you know that's what we talk about here so Christian what do you think of what seems to be the supposed reverse retro Islander jersey there's been leaks floating around online or at least concepts uh, they do a great job over at aesthetics.com they're pretty much on top of all this stuff. They're showing all the different elements of the jerseys. And we have seen some some of it teased officially from the teams and from the league now, showing some of the patches, the shoulder patches, the striping, the colors and whatnot. And it looks like you know a lot of people have been able to narrow down what these jerseys are going to look like or at least something close to it. So, Christian, you have the floor. What do you think of this, I guess, 1980 
inspired New York Islanders reverse retro jersey. I mean, I don't think there's much 1980 inspiration <laughs> from it. First of all, um, I, I mean, I, I tweeted about it, wrote about it over at NYIHockeyNow dot com, and that was really it's more of an homage to the era from 1998 to about 2010. The uh, the blue that you see in the jersey that's been teased by the team. It's looking navy. It's navy blue. It's yeah. not looking navy. It's okay, navy fine. Blue. It's There's, probably hundred percent navy. navy blue. You okay, look it's at, definitely navy. You look at the Islanders jerseys from the 90s post fisherman era to 2010 through the um, Reebok Edge jerseys, and they all kind of have the same navy blue. Um, coloring to it. So right. it's more of an homage to that team. The bigger surprise, the bigger aspect that I think everyone is curious about is what the logo on the front is going to be like. And even if you want to go back, and, and, and I know there is some hope uh, from some segment of the fan base <laughs> that the fishermen would Big be time, resurrected yeah. seen a lot in of that out there. some way of it, you do look at the old 1996-97 jersey, the fisherman logo, the one right after the fisherman, which has the Islanders' original crest, but the um, aqua blue, I guess you would right, call it. Right, the wave but jerseys or whatever the they're wave called. Jerseys, right, yeah. but there is navy blue in that. So yeah. the, the hope, or you would assume, or you would hope, I guess, not even assume, you would hope that when you're looking at this jersey and you're hoping that, hey, maybe there's a chance they bring back the fishermen, you see the navy blue, you go, all right, there's still the chance. It's in that 90s era. It's a stretch for sure. Yeah, there is no chance. But it's certainly <laughs> it's not happening. It certainly has a much more 90s feel to it, uh, early 2000s feel to it than anything that the yeah, I guess won the 80s. Because the navy blue, I suppose so. But, it, I mean, if you looked at I'm sure you saw the concepts online. I mean, it's essentially the reverse of the white jersey, I believe, where now you have the navy blue in there and basically the, the striping, you know, on the sleeve. I think they just reversed kind of the colors. I think you have the orange on the edge now, and then there's there's white and you know up off of that. It, I mean, it was and really then it's just going to have the 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 regular logo. Yeah. Maybe they'll take that fourth stripe off the stick because they didn't have it back then and only had the three stripes. Maybe the border around the actual logo is the white isn't as thick. I mean, we're <laughs> really diving into some ridiculous details here, but at the end of the day. Not exciting. Nothing. I mean, you see teams like Anaheim going bold, right? Bringing back the right. Wild Wing jersey, which everybody thought was putrid, but I give them a lot of credit for bringing it back. I think it's going to be orange this time. I mean, that's cool. It's fun. They'll probably do it for this one season and what? They'll wear it for a couple of games and, and whatever the case may be. But as far as the Islanders go, it's funny. Like some people I've seen, like just like very upset <laughs> over the fact because I think- that either it's not the Fisherman jersey or it's not exciting. And. And, you know, I look back to some of the the jerseys that this franchise has rolled out over the years, and I'm just saying to myself, well, at least it's not just total dog poop, you know? (laughs) Like, looking back, like that black, not the Brooklyn black jersey, but remember the black one with the green? That was just god-awful. The worst jersey in this franchise's history. I know a bunch of people just say, what about the Fisherman? But I actually like the Fisherman. Hey, look, we have two people on the show, right? Two out of two are actually okay with the Fisherman jersey. And, you know, the, and the young the young listeners are like, yeah, and the older listeners are like, shut up. <laughs> you know, but well, because I think we, is what it is. I think we've gone way past the point where the franchise. Yeah. What, I, I mean, Nick Hershon, who, who wrote the book on the, the Islanders he would rebrand, have He would have rebrand. them wear the Fisherman jersey full time if he could. <laughs> he is all about but he, it. He did a really great job explaining yeah. why people don't like it. But also you see why. You, you see where it comes from. It, it certainly symbolizes a lot more than just the kind of quirkiness of the of the Gordon's Fisherman logo on the front of an Islanders jersey. Right. Um, I mean, it certainly made sense when you think back to the marketing strategy. Long Island is known for its maritime and 
you know, strong, uh, you know, fishing culture, in, yeah, especially in the Su- Suffolk County, eastern yeah. Suffolk County. So yeah. it made a lot of sense to kind of try and rebrand and, and kind of bring that out as part of the culture of the Islanders and, sure. and encourage fans from that part of the island to come out and see yeah. games, too. But certainly I understand why people didn't like it because the team was terrible. They were awful. It highlighted... It brings back some bad memories. It highlighted I get it. a really bad time in the but franchise. But the young, the young fans don't have those memories. Right, and, and I so. think it's time to kind of re-embrace that. And I think the Islanders had started to do that a couple of years ago remember they wore they've been feeling it out big time they they really still sell the fisherman hats in in the team store and and online in the team store i don't know they wore the fisherman logo during a a warm-ups for one game one time a couple years ago so uh, they've had they've dabbled with it they have definitely toyed with it i maybe they're just kind of gaming for response but i don't know if lou lemarillo is ever going to be the type of guy to and i think to bring that back in an official capacity and i think that's exactly why we're seeing the jersey we're getting exactly now because it's safe yes but look again it's not going to be ugly it's going to be a nice jersey i think it's nice the concept i saw i was like that's a nice islander jersey it's just there's no wow factor to it which i I, i'm fine with i like fine i like the late 90s early 2000s jerseys well the the one that they wore when they came, what was it like when they first started with Reebok? Remember, and not they, the Halloween they, jersey. I'm they, not talking about no, that. No, no, no. I'm not talking about no. that one either. I'm saying when Reebok took over mm-hmm. the the jerseys for the league, and they basically like, like redid almost every team's jersey, save for like the original six right, and a couple right. teams like that. And I think the Islander fans started to call it the Waterwing jersey or something like that. But whatever the case may be, they, those were awful. Those are those are the second worst jerseys that the Islanders ever wore. Where you just they, they, it made no sense, like where the striping was mm-hmm. and, and the, the the orange banding, and that's what they were called, like the water wings or whatever, because they looked like swimmies. Okay, <laughs> you know, like you were going in the pool, you had some swimmies on. Those were terrible jerseys. So, uh, but I did like the the navy the navy jerseys before that that right. they wore during kind of like their rebound with Alexi Yashin and Mike right, Pekka. Right, like you know, they played it safe. It was basically the Islander jersey just with navy blue instead of. Royal blue. Right. That's all it was. Nothing too great. I yeah. mean, I do like outside of the Islanders, when you look at what some of the other teams do, do and are doing. I, some of them are I really nice. I really liked the fact that Carolina is embracing the the Harfer Whale. I am on the complete I know other you side are, of that. But I think, I think it's, it's a joke. fantastic. I think it's exactly. I, and I love the Whaler logo. I love the Whaler jerseys. I mean, I love that whole branding, but I think Carolina should just keep their hands off of it. Because it's. They're, look, they. Again, maybe again. I said it on Twitter. I don't. I don't want to try to speak for Whaler fans and Nordique fans. Now that I saw that, looks like Colorado's bringing the the Nordique sweater in. And I used to use that in an argument, like, "Hey, you don't see Colorado using the Nordiques." And now I'm like, "Thanks, guys." <laughs> Took my argument away. But still, like, you guys, st- you know, that city or the the owners of the team at that time literally ripped that franchise from diehard fans in the city they used to play. So I just feel like if I was a Whaler fan, I'd be like, "You don't get to use that. Like, that's ours." You know. I don't know. It's just, maybe. It's I mean, just it's me, been but... such a long time, and I'm I'm sure I'm going to offend Whaler fans with this, <laughs> this idea. But first of all, the fact that Hartford, Connecticut, had a professional sports franchise, maybe Ooh. one of the most fascinating things next to Green Bay, Wisconsin, having a professional wow. sports franchise. So listen, wow. I love the culture of the Hartford Whalers. I love the fact that so many people in that city still embrace that. Sure. But at the same time, franchises just don't move for no reason. And I think they're. I mean, no, of course. So, and and the fact that Carolina is still trying to embrace that and at least acknowledge that part they're of their embracing history, their wallets, they're yeah, embracing sure. the dollar bill. But they're going to sell. They're going to sell them because they're so popular. That's the only reason why they do it. Of course, no one's denying that. But they I, didn't. They didn't say, "Oh, we should really, you know, honor 
you know, the the old franchise, the old Hartford Whalers. It's not about that. It's about making money. I mean, look, this whole line of reverse retro jerseys is obviously about, about everything. making money. It's another product for people to buy, right. of course, across the board. But, like, I just feel like it crosses a line. When you're, I mean, look, I'm not losing sleep over this. I don't care. <laughs> Do whatever the hell you want. But now that it's out there and now that it's happening, it's just like, well, yeah, I got something to say about it. But at the end of the day, whatever, it's, they're going to do it. And that's, that's the way it is. I think it's cool. I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's certainly a nice homage. And, and I mean, you could make that argument of just about everything you know, from the, from a team raising a player's jersey to having a special night to honor teams that won championships. They're all, they, at the end of the day, they're holding those nights not to honor them at the end of the day. They want to make money. That's going to sell tickets. So you can be as cynical and, and uh, <laughs> about everything, if you really want to, I you know yeah. that's two great examples right there. I suppose so. Well, I guess I can we'll have just to... I can ruin your childhood dreams all you want. It just <laughs> depends on how much you want further you want me to go. I, I suppose that's true, Christian. But <laughs> let's let's try to lift it up here because we got a huge interview coming up right now with Doc Emmerich. We're excited for you guys to hear it. We're gonna go to break. We're gonna come back with Doc. Then we'll come back after that. We'll talk a little bit about it. Maybe wrap up this Jersey conversation, yep. and we'll call it a show. So, folks, please sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with the great. Mike, Doc Emmerich, we'll be right back. Customer service is the backbone of any great business, and reliable telecommunication is essential to keeping your client base happy. Introducing Thai Technology, a low-cost, flexible internet phone service founded on the idea that every customer deserves exceptional service while providing simple setup and management and easy integration to clients across the country. Thai Technology will not only create a custom solution tailored to your specific needs, but will partner with you to provide a competitive edge to you and your clients. And if you need support, you won't be routed to an automated call center in another country, you'll get a live representative that had a personal hand in building your account. So Islander fans, if your business is looking for a change from companies like Spectrum, Verizon, or Optimum, Thai Technology is offering three free months of service for any of its affordable packages. Just call 516-856-7800. That's 516-856-7800. Or visit them on the web at ThaiTechnology.com. That's Thai, T-I-E, Technology.com. Thai Technology, the right choice for your internet phone service. The only thing better than a Great Long Island Deli is a Great Long Island Deli run by diehard Islander fans. Blue Line Deli and Bagels located at 719 West Jericho Turnpike in Huntington will make any Islander fan feel right at home with its familiar blue and orange theme and Isles decor. Blue Line Deli and Bagels proudly serves Bagel Boss Bagels along with breakfast favorites, hockey-themed heroes, quesadillas, salads, fresh-made smoothies, and much more. So stop on in for delicious food, a clean atmosphere, and a happy staff ready to greet you with friendly service no matter what team you support. Want to place an order for pickup? Call 631-944-3222 or visit bluelinedeli.com to check out the menu and order online. Blue Line Deli and Bagels, where the great selections will have you saying, yes, yes, yes. Hope you enjoyed the ads. Now let's get back to Hockey Night in New York with Sean Cuthbert and Christian Arnold. All right, this is Hockey Night in New York. I'm Christian Arnold. With me, as always, is Sean Cuthbert. And, Sean, this is the interview everybody's been waiting for. On the line with us is an NHL, a hockey legend, a man who's covered over 3,000 games in his 47-year career. He's worked the Stanley Cup Final 22 times, 45 Stanley Cup playoffs and final game sevens. Six Olympics, 14 NHL All-Star Games, and 19 NHL Winter Classics and Stadium Series Games. Of course, he was the voice for that inaugural Winter Classic in Buffalo between the Pittsburgh Penguins 
and the Buffalo Sabres. He's been the voice of the NHL for the past 15 years and the voice of the New Jersey Devils for 21 years before that. He's the first member of the media to be inducted into the U.S. Hockey Hall of Fame, and he's the winner of eight National Emmy Awards for Excellence in Sports Broadcasting. Of course, he has a new great book out titled Off Mike, How a Kid from Basketball Crazy Indiana Became America's NHL Voice. The great Mike Doc Emmerich. Doc, how are you today? Good, good. It's wonderful to talk to you, too. And uh, I hope all is well there. We had a 20, uh, not to get involved in the weather, I'm not Willard Scott, but we had a 20-degree <laughs> drop in the temperature today. Uh, but it was a gorgeous day out here. It was in the 50s, and we set all kinds of records here in southeastern Michigan yesterday with, uh, with uh, the temperatures. But I hope the weather there is good, and I hope everybody is staying safe because that is a real concern right now. But it's wonderful to talk to you. Absolutely, and we really appreciate the time. And, of course, the first question is it sounds like you're enjoying retirement so far. Yes, it's been very busy. Uh, since you guys are young, uh, let me give you some elderly advice here. Uh, when you announce your retirement, don't launch a book the next day because you don't get much of a chance to breathe. And, and that's no one's fault but mine. It was accidental. The, the determining date for the release of the book was determined six months before. But um, I didn't really make a decision about retiring until somewhere in the third round of the playoffs, which would have been in September. And then there were, <coughs> excuse me, no real comfortable dates to announce it except that one Monday right before the day of the launch because it had, in my mind, no business taking place during the playoffs, nor during the draft, nor during free agency because that's for the athletes, it's for the players, and the attention needs to be on them. So when we determine that um, NBC suggested that I do a video uh, to announce it. Uh, then it required the work of an editor, and his time free was really that weekend before the Monday. So long story, seemingly longer, uh, that was the day. And how have I been? I've been busy, but it hasn't been bad. There isn't anyone on this earth that doesn't like to talk about themselves. And so <laughs> here I am doing just that with you guys. And I hope you guys are doing okay. We're we're we hanging are, in yes. there. We're hanging in there. Actually, here in New York, we just had some pretty nice weather. So we've been able to enjoy that. But, Doc, that actually leads me into my first question about the book. In your final chapter, uh, The Last Elevator Ride, you talk about making that decision to retire. And you still didn't seem like you had made, fully made that decision. What was the ultimate factor that came down to you feeling this was the right time? It was uh, it was something mentioned in the last elevator ride, but boy, did I ever pick wrong when I wrote <laughs> that. It, you know, the book went to bed on the 31st of March, which was after uh, 20 days after the pause. And I had, as as we all do, I guess we all think we know how the future is going to unfold. Otherwise, Vegas wouldn't operate, right? <laughs> you right. wouldn't be able to place bets. But I thought someday, whenever it is I decide, it will be um, after the Stanley Cup is handed out, before some crowd, either a quiet crowd in the losing arena or a noisy, thundering crowd in the arena where their team has just won. Well, there was no crowd, so I got that wrong. And I thought it was going to be you know, sometime in the future, but uh, as was hinted at in that 
in that um, last chapter when I had sat with a couple of guys who had been retired who were older than I. And they annually at that breakfast that we would have would ask me how much longer I was going to do it. Uh, I didn't have an answer. And they said, well, you'll know when the time comes. And it was during the third round that I knew. And it's a difficult explanation to make to people who haven't been close to it before. And it was a difficult explanation for me to make to myself in prior years. But I had that feeling NBC had done so much to protect me from um, the coronavirus in that they had allowed me to work at home for the first two rounds. They had not insisted that I go with the rest of the crew to Edmonton and had allowed me to continue to do the games in rounds three and four, even though they had to do some more adjustments in technology to route the signal instead of to Stamford, Connecticut, to their studios for transmission. Instead, they had to wire it directly or, or run it directly to the production truck in Edmonton, and that was extra hassle. And it made me think, gosh, they've done everything possible to keep me going here and keep me healthy for what is the end of my 40th year of doing NHL games on television. Wow. The end of my 50th year since I started covering NHL games and, and then the next year starting to broadcast play-by-play and the 60th year since I saw my first game. So there were a lot of things coming together at that time. I was healthy and I was going to continue to be that way. Thanks to them. My wife was healthy and we had, uh, in the fall of the season, the leaves turning, and it just seemed like the right time to start to enjoy a new chapter in life and leave the calling of play-by-play, at least, and all of the travel and the early morning trips through um, through the metal detectors to other people after I'd done it for all those years. So that's it. There's no backstory, no ill will or anything like that. It just seemed like it was time. Wow, sounds great. Well, Doc, Sean here. Uh, I wanted to bring it back to the book and just talk about a story that you had where you were looking for an advisor for your PhD dissertation and you decided to reach out to revered broadcaster Ernie Harwell because you heard he was a good person and he might give you a chance. And you talked about how your visit with him had an influence on your life going forward. Could you just speak on that and perhaps how it's influenced your approach to welcoming aspiring broadcasters looking for guidance from you? Well, he was just a good soul to begin with, and I won't say that about myself, but I'll sure say it about him, in that when in those days, in the mid-70s, when you send a letter to anyone, it took three days to get there, and if they answered it right away, you could figure you might hear back within another three days, and that's what it took. Ernie Harwell to return my request to him. And he probably got a lot of these because he was the voice of the Tigers. And a lot of people wanted an excuse to talk to him in person. And this was, I felt, a legitimate excuse. I needed somebody to advise me about play-by-play announcing of baseball and the history of it because that was going to be the subject of my doctoral dissertation at Bowling Green. So we had two sessions together. The first one was the longest one. But then uh, we we took a walk down the concourse, and not only had I realized that his kindness to me, not only in writing back, but in the 30 minutes that we had together on tape, uh, was a part of his personality and a part of his faith and his life. But as we walked down the concourse, there was a woman that was, because it was two hours before game time, 
there was a woman who was grilling hot dogs in the empty Tiger Stadium, and there was a man setting up his podium to put scorecards and pencils on it to sell those to people that would be coming in eventually. And they both noticed these two guys walking down the hallway some distance away, but they realized one was dressed like Ernie Harwell and the other was some guy from some college somewhere. <laughs> and uh, and they made eye contact with him and they continued to, as they were doing their work, they'd look up again and see if he was coming. And you could tell that they hoped that he would come to them and say something. And sure enough, he did. He introduced me to them using their first and last names and in both cases made some uh, conversation with them about their families and so forth. And then uh, and then after he had spoken with, with both of them individually and introduced me to them, saying, shake hands with a friend of mine, Mike Emmerich, we'd known each other for 30 minutes. <laughs> then we moved on down to the press room for dinner. But that impressed me in that that. This was, uh, I'd been through the Dale Carnegie course, and I realized that one of the tenets of Dale Carnegie is that uh, the sweetest sound to any man is the sound of his own name. And not only did Ernie have that, but he had, he had taken the time to actually spend a few seconds with people and made them feel so much better. And it was a part of how he lived his life. And as is mentioned there on one of the pages, uh, Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, was actually a Presbyterian minister, but he said, a ministry doesn't always have to be in a church. It can be in a broadcast booth, too. And Ernie showed that in all of his dealings with people, but particularly with me that time. I was so glad that I got to meet him, and he was my non-academic advisor. There were five guys with PhDs that signed the front of it. But Ernie was actually the the lead guy in advising me on various things. And the life lessons I learned were far more important than the doctorate. It's fantastic stuff, Doc. And I just want to swing it over to another individual from your book. And this might have been one of my favorite chapters, Chapter 11. Uh, you shared some hilarious antics from Coach Terry Slater. And I just wanted to know if you had <laughs> one. How do you know that guy? <laughs> well, I read the book. <laughs> And oh, okay. I didn't know. You, you You sound like you might not have been old enough to have met him, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm pleased. I am pleased that you're amused by him because I sure was. But go ahead. Yeah, no, I just, I was literally cracking up through that chapter because I just thought the antics were, were absolutely hilarious. And there's too many to go through here now through this interview, but I did want to ask if you had one favorite story in particular that you could share with us because I was, like I said, I was just laughing real hard. Yeah, um, well, the Des Moines, where he had coached, one of the places he coached was Des Moines. He coached in Toledo. He coached in the WHA in Los Angeles for a team called the Sharks, of all things. Uh, he believed in having tough teams, and he believed in having older players on his teams. He coached in Cincinnati in the WHA. He was around a long time, but where he really made his mark at the end of his life, which ended too soon due to cancer, was coaching Colgate University. And that was where he finished his coaching career. He was there for over a decade. And he was uh, he was this very erudite, brilliant guy who also knew how to vote, motivate. And he was not beyond using theatrics to do anything to try to uh, get a get a win uh, in the minor leagues. So 
he felt that uh, in the IHL, Dayton, uh, Des Moines was the geographical distortion. Uh, they were 700 miles away from their nearest opponent, so every one of their games was a long bus trip. And Des Moines liked playing at home on Friday and Saturday, but what happened was they, they were forced to play in Dayton on Sunday. Not only was that a long bus ride, but in the IHL, the, visit, the, the home team had the right to play matinees on Sunday. So not only did he have to play a Saturday night game at home, he had to bus all night and play at 3 o'clock Sunday afternoon in Dayton. And so he stopped at the edge of Dayton at about oh, 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning when the bus finally got to Dayton, went into a Kmart and bought night shirts for everybody on the team. And he sent, uh, looking like uh, Ebenezer Scrooge in the Christmas Carol, you know, <laughs> with a long nightshirt on. And he sent the whole team out for the warm-up wearing nightshirts to try to prove a point with the Dayton management that they were making these guys play when they should be sleeping. Fantastic. On the line with us, it is our distinct honor to have the voice of the National Hockey League, Doc Emmerich, with us. And, Doc, I, I want to go back to, to something real quick in, in your answer about Ernie Har- uh, Harwell. Um, and I, I feel like it, 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 it really symbolizes the humbleness that you, that you have as, as the legend that you are. Um, and I think I can speak for Sean and myself when I say, you know, for the last 15 years, when we thought of national hockey league coverage and on TV, we thought of Doc Emmerich. Absolutely. Uh, and everyone seems to have a story about you, a story that, that really highlights the person that you are, um, coming from the Islanders where, where we cover, you know, Arthur Stable, who's the beat writer for the athletic had a great story about his time working as a statistician for you in the 90s on accidentally kicking you in the elbow his first time meeting you. Um, Brian Burke had so many fantastic things to say about you from, you know, your email. Uh, Brendan Burke, I'm sorry. Brendan Burke had so many great, great things to say about you. Uh, from your email, you sent him after his first big call of Josh Bailey's goal to, um, you know, other things about reach, you reaching out to him for some assistance when you covered the Islanders game during the postseason. For you, what has it been like to see so many people have these these stories that mean so much to them about you and the impact that you've had on their careers and their lives? Well, it's, it's very uh, heartening, and I guess in a way you're sort of in awe of the fact that they would that they would feel that way. I, I, I saw that from Arthur and I, I don't remember it at all. It must have been, <laughs> it must have been, it was nothing, but it must have been something to him. You know, if, if it was 1990, poor guy, we were working in Boston Garden and it was awful because you had to cry, climb over a railing to get down into a bucket that was suspended from the first tier. And you, it was the greatest broadcast location in history because you were 10 rows back from the near boards. So you could see really well. You could even hear the punches land when there were fights. It was, you were so close, but it was, it was an afterthought because the, the garden was built in the 1920s before the, barely after the invention of radio and long before the invention of television. And so there was no thought about putting a broadcast location in the Boston Garden. So they had to put it there as an afterthought. They put they attached buckets to the front row of the of the balcony and uh, dropped you down below so they could still so, sell the first row of seats. And uh, and and so you were dropped down there into this great location. But to get there, you had to crawl over the railing 
that was in front of the first row of seats that had been there since the 20s and then climb a ladder down. Well, it was tough to do. And Arthur must have not been able to do it as smoothly as he wanted to. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, Brandon is a magnificent announcer. And I just heard from his father within the last week. And I didn't realize that his father was a longtime sports writer, introduced him to hockey in Milwaukee. And so his father was responsible for Brendan having this fanatic appreciation for hockey that he did because he was covering sports in Milwaukee. And they've always had a wonderful, uh, at one time, IHL team in Milwaukee and now American Hockey League team. So it's, uh, it's, it's always fun to hear from not only guys that are announcers in the field, but I recently heard from his father, who's a sports writer. Isn't that wonderful? Wow, that's great stuff. And Doc, throughout the book, you had mentioned your appreciation for the pugilism of of hockey's uh, years past, but also how you grew to come to appreciate the the modern day you know player sacrifice. Even though you're not seeing too much of that going on anymore, it's more of a sacrificing the body, getting in front of shots and blocking shots and whatnot. And you actually mentioned a, a quote from Barry Trotz in relation to that. Maybe you can just speak on that a little bit for uh, our Islander listeners here. Yeah, he was coaching Nashville, and uh, our studio, or the place that we work and then eventually uh, leave and go up to the broadcast booth at Joe Louis Arena in Detroit, was in the hallway that the Predators had to walk by. And Barry was always so friendly to us, um, Pierre and Eddie and I, that he would usually poke his head in the door and we'd have a, a, a brief chat uh, as the team entered the arena an hour and a half to two hours before the game. And so he, he came by one night before a game with Detroit. And I said, you've coached in this sport for quite some time and you've seen both eras. What's the difference in courage now compared to courage before? And he said, well, before the courage wasn't surviving the night. Because it was rough, uh, sticks were oftentimes used to defend the front of the net. You'd get, you could get really injured by sticks, but more importantly, you could. There were fights all the time, and at one time there were bench clearing brawls that were allowed. Uh, there were no multi-game suspensions for that. So in the earlier era, it was a matter of surviving the night, and now the courage that's required is the speed of it, the collisions, driving the net and going toward the net, which of course is planted in the ice, and blocking shots and giving your body up in front of shots that can come 100 miles an hour and all of those things. So he said, it's not like the game doesn't require courage anymore. It does. It's just a different kind than it used to be. And in the era when it was surviving the night, the sport was not nearly as fast and the players were not nearly as big. Uh, in, say, 40 years ago, the average player was 5'11", 185. Uh, this past year, it was 6'1", to 6'1 and a half and 200. So you see there's been a great difference just in, uh, just in bodybuilding, nutrition, uh, DNA, everything else in the last 40 years of the sport. But I, I have great respect for Barry and what he has done during his coaching career. And I'll never forget what he told me about. Uh, we were in Nashville once 
And I said, when you first arrived here, you were you were a new NHL coach in with a new NHL team. So what did you think? He said, I just wanted to survive one year because I was a new NHL coach in a new market and a non-traditional market. And I just wanted to get through one year in Nashville. He got through 15. Of course, the book we keep referencing is Doc's new book that is out now available where all books are sold. It's called uh, Off Mike, How a Kid from Basketball Crazy Indiana Became America's NHL Voice. He wrote it along with the help of another great uh, sports person, and that's Kevin Allen uh, from USA Today, or formerly from USA Today. Doc, I, I was curious when we were doing our prep for this interview. Uh, we learned a lot. I can about tell it. you guys are really well prepared too, and I appreciate <laughs> that. You guys are you guys are amazing. I don't know if there's a time limit on this, but don't worry about it from my standpoint. You guys just keep going. All right. Well, we might just keep you here for the next three hours. If that's all right, because <laughs> this, this has been a great conversation. Absolutely. But the one thing I wanted to ask, I mean, besides the fact that um, you had been, you'd covered college basketball for CBS. You had actually been on the broadcast for Brett Favre's first NFL game, which was phenomenal. We actually, uh, I was clicking around YouTube, I found the clip. But one thing I never realized was that because everyone knows you have such a unique lexicon and such a, a fantastic way of describing the game and describing events that you could make uh, painting a wall sound amazing. But one thing <laughs> I never realized was that you are the founding member, uh, and I'm not sure if you're still the president, but from what we saw, you were the president of the NHL Pronunciation Guide. How in the world did you get that started? Well, I, I attended a meeting, and isn't that the way things happen? <laughs> yes. So we're having a Broadcasters Association meeting, and and so at the meeting, Dick Irvin, who is still the legendary executive secretary of the NHL Broadcasters Association, was there. And Chuck Caton, uh, who is uh, the longtime legendary announcer for the Hartford Whalers and more recently the Carolina Hurricanes, um, it was there. And so we were talking about various things. And I said, you know, whenever we go into arenas, and I'd only been in the NHL a couple of years with Philadelphia, we always go to the other, the, the other announcer and hold up a roster and say, okay, how do you say him? How do you say him? How do you say him? What do you think would happen if we have each guy get his training camp roster? That's NHL guys, American League guys, and minor league guys beyond that, and and get these guys the early days of training camp, so that we we've got not only the guys that are playing when we arrive in town, but any guys that get called up, we don't have to rush around and try to find out how to say their names. And Dick says that's a great idea. Why don't you do it? Well, so, so I wound up with it. And the, the upshot of the meeting was that Dick appointed Chuck Caton as president of the association and made me vice president. And I don't think we had a vote. Uh, I think he just announced that that was going to be it. We were going to be the two guys and we, Chuck still is the president of the association. And up until the last two years ago, I was the vice president. So that shows the power of Dick Irvin. But it all started from that, and, and I, I'm going on too long here. But what would happen is each announcer would uh, find out all the pronunciations. He would phone my answering machine in the fall, <laughs> and I would play those back and then convert them into phonetics from the UPI style book, the phonetic pronunciations, like the league does now. The league took it over in 2005 coming out of the lockout. 
Uh, but for the first uh, 21, 22 years, that was how I did it. Wow, that's great stuff, Doc. And uh, just to, to go back to the book for a second, something our Islander listeners will appreciate was you actually dedicated a chapter to the Easter epic and calling that game, which I'm sure was madness. And, you know, we're a little young to, you know, we weren't really around to watch that game. <laughs> I think we were maybe five, six years old, whatever the case may be, when that came out. But obviously we know all about it. And maybe you could just speak on, you know, experiencing that, that game, what it meant, and maybe touch on a little bit on the antics that uh, you and Bill Clement got involved in <laughs> later on in the night. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, uh, it, um, it all started as a normal night. It was a seventh game, which is never normal, in 1987. This was Washington and the Islanders in Landover, Maryland, where the Capitals played until they moved uh, in the 1990s downtown. Uh, what happened was the um, Kelly Rudy was at one end, Bob Mason was at the other, and the goaltenders prevailed. And this thing went into a record number of overtimes. So we were carrying the game on ESPN. And back then, it was before 1995, the first year when the local announcers were not allowed to do the final. It was all a part of national networks. So uh, Jiggs McDonald was doing the game uh, on Sports Channel for the Islanders. And um, uh, in Washington, I believe Mike Forns was doing the game for whatever the Capitals network was. And Bill Clement and I were doing the game on ESPN. And Bob Cole was doing the game on uh, Hockey Night in Canada. So it was getting immense coverage on four different networks that night, let alone the radio. So uh, Bill and I are doing this game. And it's, uh, it, it's getting into the second overtime. And... We've talked to several players who participated in the game in preparation for the book. And um, one of them, Dwayne Sutter, was telling me that usually most guys, when you're getting into that second overtime, and particularly the third one, you've got a couple of good bursts of shifts early in the overtime in you, and then you're just playing defense the rest of the way because you don't want to give up the goal, but you think you might be able to score it if you get a break early. And that was kind of how it unfolded. And so it looked like it was going to go on for a while and the goalies were going to be dominant. And that was pretty well the way it unfolded. It eventually went four overtimes, but anyway, in the second overtime, um, uh, Bill had the, uh, had the idea that, uh, uh, you know, let's, uh, well, we, we might as well, if we've got to fill a long intermission at the end of the second overtime, um, they're going to throw it back here to us. Why don't we do something a little unconventional? And Bill has never been a guy that uh, shied away from doing something that <laughs> most would think was risky. So he does all of these voices and he still does them today. He's still hilarious at doing things like this. And so it is on YouTube. You're right. It's, uh, he, I, I, uh, I took, uh, uh, I loosened my shirt. He took his shirt off. He was wearing a T-shirt, but he, he did male modeling, so he had the body to do it, tied his tie around his forehead, and uh, pretended that he was Cochise. And then he did a John Wayne impersonation. He did Boom Boom Jeffreyon, who was one of his former coaches, uh, and and uh, was really cutting up. So anyway, so that passed, and we went into the third overtime. Uh, Bill got the idea that if and it was starting to look like we were going to have another intermission before the fourth overtime uh, in the event that we were still tied after three. 
that he would be taking his T-shirt off. <laughs> and uh, so now he was giving people something to look forward to uh, if the game went on. We did a countdown like you would do on New Year's Eve to midnight, uh, heralding in Easter. Um, we were getting a little punchy, but later the players told us they were doing the same thing in the dressing room. They were trying to tell jokes to keep things light when they were exhausted from playing in the game. Um, so the third overtime ends and I made a break for the washroom and I came back expecting to see Bill stripped down to the waist. And what I saw was Bill Clement with his shirt done up, his tie pulled up and his jacket on. And all I said to him was, we got a phone call, didn't we? And he nodded his head. Yes. And uh, so that was what might have happened had we not gotten a phone call. So we did the conventional intermission and then they went into the fourth overtime and Pat LaFontaine wheeled a shot that clanked off the right post and behind Mason into the net and the Islanders won. And I'm not sure how much more time you have, but I'll tell you this. One of the uh, aspects of that, which I don't believe is in the book, um, there were a couple of Islander fans that had come down from Long Island to a wedding. Uh, you'll have to refresh my memory if it's in the book or not. It was a part of the story, and I know it was something I wanted to include, but not everything can you get in. Anyway, they came down. And this was in the day of non-scanned tickets. Your ticket was torn at yes, the gate rather yes. than being scanned. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, they came down to the wedding and they uh, decided that they didn't have to participate in the uh, in the wedding itself. They were just attending, but they were they were going to the reception and they were dressed in tuxedos and they looked really sharp and all. So they decided to come to the game uh, and see part of the game and then go to the reception. Yes, that was. So that's what they did. They saw the first part <laughs> of the game. They went to the reception and then they got out of the reception about midnight and they turned on the car radio to see how the game had turned out and who won. And that was when they heard the game was still on. So they still had their stubs. So they went back and got back in their seats and uh, were there to celebrate the Islanders' victory. And the reason I knew the whole story was they came down the ramp uh, to the Islanders' bus after the game was over while we were waiting outside for a cab to take us back to our hotel. And uh, we, I went up to them and I said, what are you guys doing here? Because they were dressed in tuxedos. You don't see <laughs> fans dressed in tuxedos. So one of them told me the whole story about about the wedding. That's um, that's a really long answer to your question. <laughs> Fantastic one at that, though. And Great of, stuff. And, of course, if you want to hear more stories like this, you can pick up Doc's uh, new book, uh, Off Mike, How a Kid from Basketball Crazy Indiana Became America's NHL Voice, available where all books are sold. And, Doc, uh, New Yorkers are a bit spoiled. Obviously, for 15 years, you were the voice of the National Hockey League. But for 21 years, you were the voice of the New Jersey Devils, which is uh, their broadcast, for the most part, have been available within the tri-state area. And we've had the pleasure of hearing you not only as a national broadcaster, but locally doing New Jersey Devils games. And 
obviously because of your long relationship with the Devils, you have a, a long relationship with now general manager Lou Lamorello of the New York Islanders. Um, and it seems like it, it really has become a special one. He was on the press conference call you had uh, a couple weeks ago when you announced your retirement. What has that been like to get to know Lou Lamorello outside of the hockey mind that we all know him of? Uh, he's a great human being, and he's so supportive when things are not going well. During the time I was with the Devils, both of my parents passed away, and we had a terrible situation uh, for us in that we had never, my wife and I, had never uh, had been able to have uh, a dog before because uh, we both had jobs that really had different schedules, and so we didn't really have that kind of stability to be able to be fair to a to a creature to take care of it without it being alone a lot, which is not fair, we thought. But eventually, in the mid-90s, when I was able to, as a network employee, to be able to live wherever I wanted, we were able to situate ourselves where we are now here in southeast Michigan, and our lives stabilized to the point where we could actually, for the first time in our married life, own a dog. Well, of all things, this uh, creature wound up getting kidney disease, which is in most cases, uh, it's hard to stop it. Uh, and it is in most cases terminal. You can treat it, but you can't solve it. And so she was not uh, three when she passed, but we were trying feverishly to solve whatever problems we could in, in whatever ways we could. We got her to University of California, Davis, and Lou was Lou was right with us step by step. I was having to miss Devils games and uh, the folks at Madison Square Garden who were my principal employer and Lou, who was the guy that said yes or no about Madison Square Gardens employing people every year, couldn't have been better, couldn't have been more upfront and supportive of us during that difficult time. You would expect it with with the death of a parent. And as I said, I lost both of them at that time. But he stepped forward at that time as well. And I think it probably was the hardest call that I had to make when I turned 65 and decided I can't keep burning the candle at both ends and do both NBC and the Devils games anymore because I was doing 120 games a year. And in a hockey season... That's a lot of games. And so I had to call him and tell him, I'm just going to have to pull back and do only NBC from now on. And he was not angry or disappointed. He, he accepted it very wonderfully, as I knew he would. Um, and then uh, presented me with a black Lincoln that I still drive to this day. And whenever it turns a significant milestone, I always take a picture of the odometer and send it to him so that he knows <laughs> that it is still hanging in and doing pretty well. And hopefully I will be too. Wow. That's, that's great. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Doc. And I think the last one we'll leave you with here because we are an Islander centric show is uh, there is a good. Quote. <laughs> you had a great you had a great year. I thought maybe you might be able to nudge another victory out of that Tampa Bay series, but it was a wonderful year. It came close. It came close, and everybody's very excited for what's to come. But there's a, a quote 
from you uh, in regards to the Nassau Coliseum, which will be closing after this year uh, under the hope and assumption that they actually do get one more year in there, granted with everything that's going on. But I, I'll quote you as saying, I can't remember a louder ovation than when John Tavares scored an overtime winner against Washington. And maybe you could just speak about that experience and perhaps any other experience you might have had just calling games at the Coliseum now that it looks like its, it's, its book will finally be closed on, on its NHL hosting. Yeah, well, we always are partial to places we announcers are where we can see. Because number one, the job is to identify players. And I always like to identify players and not have to strain to do it. And at the Coliseum, I never had to strain to identify players. And that goal was scored right in front of me. Our location tended to be over one blue line rather than at center. And uh, that goal was scored right in front of me so I could see it all the way. But the, the place, you know, the roof is fairly low. It's not really high. And it really reverberates sound well. But it also helps if you have impassioned fans. And I would argue that the Islanders would not have been swept two years ago if they would have been able to get Carolina in there. But those are all things that I can't control. Uh, but I, I think that playing them in there as they did Pittsburgh in there would have made a big difference because that's an intimidating place to play when the fans are cranked up and they sure were against the Penguins. Wow. Well, Doc, we cannot thank you enough for giving us all your time tonight. Uh, absolutely fantastic. We really appreciate it. And uh, we wish you the best and the best of luck in your retirement. And we thank you for, for all the amazing Amazing broadcasting you did for the for the league, uh, the National Hockey League and hockey overall. I mean, just amazing. It it was just great growing up listening to your voice and watching all these games. And, and I can't say enough about the job that you did. And and we really appreciate you spending some time with us tonight. Well, I thank you very much. And I I, I think uh, Mr. Lamorella would be proud of the job both of you guys did because you came prepared. And the one thing that I always saw about people that Lou had around was that they were workers. And if they weren't workers, they weren't there very long. Uh, but I think he would probably be proud of the job you did because you were ready for this. You were ready to go, and you did a great job. So thank you. Christian, just fantastic stuff from Doc. Yeah, he gave us nearly 40 minutes of his time for that interview, which we recorded earlier this week Yes, uh, over the phone. And uh, we couldn't have been more thrilled with him just – giving us so many great stories. Obviously, yeah, giving us all that time. We had the chance to read the book, and a phenomenal read again if you if you want to go The book was excellent. I loved it. Yeah. I yeah. highly recommend it. Just the, the storytelling yes. is phenomenal. Uh, you laugh, maybe get a little teary-eyed in some of the stuff in there. It's It has everything, and it's just a great read. Yeah, absolutely. So certainly uh, couldn't have been more happy with how uh, – our interview with Doc came out and how uh, how gracious he, he was with his time and obviously how many kind things he had to say about us. Yeah, that, that was something else. I mean, that was, uh, that was pretty humbling. It was really nice to hear that. And, uh, you know, and again, just the fact that, I mean, it was like sitting down on the couch with him, you know, and just having a chat, yeah. just having a conversation. Yeah. He was just so nice, so warm, so friendly. And, you know, he, he never knew we existed on this earth until, <laughs> until, you know, he had that interview with us. And just for him to be such a gentleman, and to just be so great with us was uh, was was phenomenal, and and a little icing on the cake to, to hear some nice things uh, said back to us was great. Absolutely, it was it was an absolute pleasure. And again, um, can highly recommend the book. Sean and I were both lucky enough to be able to get a 
copy of it and read it. Again, it's called Off Mike, How a Kid from Basketball Crazy Indiana Became America's NHL Voice. The forward is written by Eddie Olchek, which is really great. And Kevin Allen, the great hockey writer formerly of USA Today, had a part in uh, in writing the book as well. So, I mean, a phenomenal read. A lot of great stories. A lot of great stories about his career. A lot of great stories about hockey in general. And obviously these cool little tidbits that involve the Islanders. Obviously, Lou's got Mike's connection with Lou Lamorello, Barry Trotz, the Easter yep. Epic, mm-hmm. all these little tidbits that have these connections to the Islanders. But, of course, even if you're not uh, an Islander fan, the book is worth the read just for the stories alone that, that, that Doc tells in them. No question about it. So get to Amazon, get to Barnes & Nobles, get That's to wherever right. you got to go, That's right. get yourself a copy because it's a fantastic book, and I will always appreciate the – Doc giving us his time and giving us that interview because it was a lot of fun. It was great. Absolutely. I mean, he couldn't have been nicer about everything. Yeah, and and I'm telling you, those stories, I mean, he gave us that one, you know, about the, the nightgowns, but there's yes, even better yeah. ones in there. You, <laughs> just that chapter alone, it was hilarious. So, again, fantastic stuff. And then I guess we'll... We'll just kind of wrap up. I mean, we can close the, I guess, close the discussion on the jerseys here, and then and then we'll we'll take off from there. I mean, we're almost at the the hour mark, but um, I mean, look, the Islanders are getting a jersey. Yeah, <laughs> every every team's getting a jersey. Yeah, they're like getting a jersey. Uh, um, there's some really nice ones, and you know, the Rangers I'm, one's pretty nice too. I know I'm going to get killed for saying that, but it, it's a nice looking jersey there. Hey, and, look, there's nothing wrong with just looking at them aesthetically, right? Forget about what team they're for. If they look nice, they look nice, yeah, you know? So. I mean, look, I thought the Liberty jerseys were cool back in the day. So did I. They were great. I wasn't a fan of the team, Still but great. I thought they were cool jerseys, yeah. so after bringing that back, I think that's cool. Um, I'm really excited about the Blues jersey, because I loved those jerseys back in the 90s. Yes, those when were they wore really, those With the red in them, and now the, the red cool. is going to be the dominant color. Yeah. It looks beautiful. I might actually pick one of those up. They're that nice. <laughs> And, uh, again, we talked about the Ducks one. I think the Bruins one's going to be really nice. That's going to be have the, the yellow as the dominant color yeah. with the old um, – I believe that jersey was worn during the 90s too or maybe the late 80s, I forget. But that was a nice one I was looking at. And the Flyers one, I, I hate it. They do such a good job with their jerseys. Those they do. Those uh, stadium series ones that they wore against the Penguins where it was like all black and just the singular orange stripes. They always do a phenomenal They were like job, really yeah. dark jerseys. They were awesome. And now these ones that are coming out look really nice too. And I don't like the filthy Flyers, man. But I, but I look, credit where it's due. They're really nice. So that'll be exciting. Do we do we even know when these are going to be released? There's when still not a buy them date, or anything like I'm that. I'm sure it'll be before whatever start date to this season will will have. I'm sure they'll be out somewhere yeah. around then. So something to look forward to. Obviously, a lot going on with the actual preparation for next season as well. You're seeing a lot of uh, more details, at least some planning coming out slowly but surely. Where talking hub cities we're talking teams potentially playing in their own arenas but with some fans maybe no fans depending on restrictions in those markets so there's still a lot to be worked out again like we talked about the other week the positive is you're seeing the nba roll things out as well and they're going to be doing it i guess in a similar fashion Mm -hmm. and it's got to give hope and some positive encouragement to hockey fans in the nhl that if the nba can do it then the nhl can certainly find a way to do it especially considering the way they pulled off the playoff hubs up in toronto and edmonton so there's a lot of exciting things hopefully on the horizon the jerseys obviously the one thing that everyone's talking about right now yeah, it's the only thing really going on but the league itself you know? there's a lot of things going on that seems like behind, behind the, the scenes, scenes to yeah. get a season going for 2020 2021 yeah and just to close my thought on the gripe <laughs> oh sorry <laughs> no it's all right with the uh you know the the colorado jerseys and the <laughs> and the carolina jerseys now the, the the Minnesota Wild, apparently, they're honoring the old North Stars jerseys, yeah. which is fine because it's the same city, same fans. Fine. I get that. 
That makes sense. And obviously, I mean, it doesn't because it's not the same franchise. It's not, but it's still it's not part of their history. Correct, correct. But it's a part of the city's history. It's a part of the fans' history. Whereas, whereas the Whalers, the Whalers have nothing to do with the Colorado Avalanche fans. They don't care. Oh, sorry, not Colorado. I apologize. Col- I apologize. Hurricanes. The Carolina Hurricanes. I mixed my my teams there for a second. But yes, the Carolina Hurricanes fans don't give a crap. About the Whalers. I don't Just know. Just like about Avalanche that. fans I, don't care about the Nordiques. I think, again, it's a n- nice nostalgic. Nobody in Denver knew who the Nordiques were but see, <laughs> before the Avalanche then, came over there. But then the Devils have worn the, the not the Christmas tree jerseys, but they've worn jerseys that go, go back to the old Colorado Rocky days. They, I think they might have worn a jersey so why, that was like, inspired by the design, but so they still why use is that the devil's. Not like the same idea. It's it's, it's just different. It's, it's not just different. <laughs> You're just picking and choosing which which no, it's which different thing you get outraged about or don't get outraged about. In, Outrage in is a strong word. But you get upset about. Yeah, yeah. cranky. Cranky. <laughs> Maybe yeah, cranky's yeah. the word. Cranky. Well, Christian, I guess we can wrap it up there because yeah. that's pretty much everything. I hope everybody enjoyed the interview with Doc. We did. Yes, it was awesome. And, look, things are kind of fluid right now for Hockey Night in New York. We're kind of just waiting and seeing. I mean, again, the only talking point we had outside of Doc was, was the jerseys. And somehow we squeezed 15 to 20 minutes out of that. And we'll see what comes down the pike. If there's more news coming up, you'll see us next week. If not, we might take some time off, but we'll obviously keep you guys posted. And we'll go from there. We actually have a lot of exciting stuff going on behind the scenes here at Hockey Night New York that we're, we're looking forward to bringing out with the new season coming on and whenever training camp starts and stuff like that. So in, in any case, keep it here. Keep it at HockeyNightNY.com. Obviously, keep it at Twitter. But we're going to wrap it up for now. So cue the outgoing music. And, folks, I want to thank you so much for tuning in. Send, send out a huge, 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 huge thanks to Doc Emmerich for joining us and giving us his time. It was fantastic. I want to send out a big thanks to our sponsors, starting with Blue Line Deli and Bagels, located at 719 West Jericho Turnpike in Huntington. Head on over for great food, great service, and phenomenal people. They are huge Islander fans. Check out the menu, menu at bluelinedeli.com. I want to send out a big thanks to Thai Technology, a voiceover IP company providing phone services for businesses across the country. Check them out at thaitechnology.com for all your telecom needs or give them a call at 516-856-7800 for phenomenal customer service. I want to thank you guys once again for tuning in. Remember, keep it here at HockeyNightNY.com for all live shows and archive shows. And if you enjoy, enjoy the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast providers. Tell your friends, spread the word. Follow Christian on Twitter at C underscore Arnold zero one. Follow myself at Shawnee Hockey. And follow the show on all social media platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Hockey Night NY. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday night. We will see you next time. <laughs>